Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 100. And I just want to ask while you turn there, what's that feeling inside of you uh, that you just had for a couple of minutes there? It was only 90 seconds. <laughs> I've been here the whole time. You just didn't know. So was it worry? What's happened to Pastor Aubrey? Something wrong? Is he ill? Concern? Maybe surprise? Uh, maybe some of you thought, well, ministry finally drove him crazy and he left. <laughs> Wondering what's happened to the pastor. Wondering why hasn't Pastor Aubrey shown up this morning? Well, brothers and sisters, that feeling of concern, what I want to help you see this morning, is that feeling of concern that you just had, that feeling of surprise that you just had, is not just a feeling that we should have when the pastor doesn't show up, or when one of the music team members doesn't show up. No, it's a feeling of concern that we should share whenever we see a fellow church member not show up. It's definitely, I would say, the feeling that your elders have, that we have, when we see church members gone for an extended absence without reason. And you might hear that and say, well, Pastor Aubrey, it's a little bit different. You know, this is your job. You have a job to do. You have a responsibility placed upon you here. You have a calling from God to be here and preach the Word of God. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to recognize this morning, biblically speaking, is that you too have a job. And you too have a responsibility placed upon you. In fact, you also, every one of you who is in Christ, has a calling and a ministry given to you by the Lord our God, placed upon you, even as He summons you into His assembly with His people. We're continuing our sermon series this morning uh, called Rediscovering Church. And today, we're going to talk about one of the central things that makes a church a church. And this is a fundamental duty of every Christian. We're going to talk about gathering. Gathering. You might remember my definition of the church last week, a local church in particular. It's a congregation of baptized believers in a covenant relationship with one another to gather together regularly under the right preaching of God's Word to affirm one another's faith through the ordinances, the right practice of the ordinances, and to live together as the body of Christ. And today we're going to look at that first part, that this is a congregation of baptized believers who gather together regularly. Uh, much of what I'm saying today you can find in this excellent book by Matt Merker called Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People. I uh, just want to commend that book to you. So today we're looking at gathering, and my hope this morning is that our hearts would grow in gratitude for the gift of gathering that God gives to, his, to us as His people, as well as in our commitment to gathering, to this assembly of the people of God. We're going to ask and answer two questions this morning, right? Two questions, but first I want to read Psalm 100 to orient our minds. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
and his faithfulness to all generations. O God, show mercy to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us as we come to you. Instruct us, Lord, from your word. Meet with us. Show us Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said we're going to ask and answer two questions. First question is simply this. Why must we gather? Why must we gather? And I want to also speak to the kids who are with us this morning. I mean, kids might have this question, Daddy, Mommy, why do we go to church? Right? Why do we do this every week? This is something that's built into the fabric of our lives that you do all the years that you're at home with your parents. Why must we go to church? Well, kids, today we're going to answer that. The first reason why we must gather, why we go to church is for God. For God to know and worship and obey and enjoy God, our Creator, our Redeemer. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism's first question is this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is why we were created. You see, when God created us in His image, He created us different from the rest of creation. He created us with the capacity to know and to worship Him. That's why we're created. And so in the one sense, for a Christian, all of life is worship. And sometimes people get this idea, all of life is worship. Well, then why are we emphasizing this gathered worship? Isn't just all my life supposed to be worship? And, and the answer is, yes, well, both of those are related. We live all of our lives week to week, day to day as a, an act of worship so that when we come here and gather, we're not coming here in hypocrisy or just pretending. And then we gather in worship and this gathering is what fuels and enables and strengthens us, equips us, empowers us to live all of life as worship. Why do we gather? Because God summons us, calls us to gather. God assembles His people by His Word, and we see this throughout the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, the whole story of Scripture is the story of God dwelling with His people, assembling, gathering them by His Word. You think about this right since very early in the book of Exodus, when God is going to redeem His people from Egypt, bring them out. He tells Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh and says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. And, and the goal is to meet with God together. And worship Him. We see that as they assemble at Mount Sinai. God speaks to His people by His word. And the people of Israel, the congregation of Israel, are gathered by the word of God at Mount Sinai. We see this continue in the book of Leviticus when uh, they assemble the tabernacle according to the instructions that God gives them. And Leviticus chapter 8, when that dwelling place, that place of worship for the people of Israel, for God to dwell in their midst is inaugurated, the first thing God tells Moses is, command the congregation, all the congregation of Israel, to assemble. We see throughout the Old Covenant that God appointed these times when all Israel were to gather in Jerusalem for appointed feasts to worship Him. It didn't matter how far you lived, you were to make the journey to Jerusalem three times a year to gather with God's people. That was central to the old covenant worship. As the people of God then are taken into exile and judged by God for their sin, even as you read the prophets, you will see that there is this promise of God that He is going to gather His people, not just Jews, but from every nation, from the ends of the earth. He's going to gather them, bring them to Himself, to worship Him. And then as we come to the New Testament, and as we see the new covenant inaugurated, as we open the book of Acts, what do we see? 
we see Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He sends down the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. And then Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and he preaches God's word. What is the response that follows? Acts chapter 2 verse 37. The people there hear it. It says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And what does Peter say? He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he continues to exhort them with many other words. They receive his word, they repent, they're baptized, they added about 3,000 souls. This is the first church, right? The church in Jerusalem, the first new covenant church. And it's a mega church with 3,000. And, and what is this, one of the signs that they've received the Holy Spirit? What is one of the signs of their repentance? How do they start living life together? Well, he tells us in verse 46 and 47. Day by day, they attended the temple together. They gathered together. And breaking, breads in their, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. One of the first things that these repentant new Christian believers, God's new covenant people, the fulfillment of all God's promises of old, what are they doing? They gather. And as you read the book of Acts, that continues. They continue to gather. Acts chapter 5 tells us they were all together at Solomon's portico. As the apostles are sent out from there and go to the ends of the earth, as Paul goes and plants churches, what do those churches do? They gather every Lord's Day, week after week. And then as you keep reading the Bible, you come to the end of the Bible, you come to the book of Revelation, what do you see? You see pictures of the finished work of God. Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7. And, and what is the final picture? It's people from every tribe and tongue and nation. ECC gives us a small uh, preview of that. People from every tribe and tongue and nation doing what? Gathered around the throne, singing, worthy is the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. The Bible ends with this, Revelation chapter 21. Behold, the dwelling of God is with man, and they shall be his, their, uh, his people, and God himself shall be with them as their God. So, friends, that, that's the pattern of Scripture. God's word creates God's people. God summons his people into his assembly, and he meets with us there. And so we gather out of obedience to him. But it's not just obedience on our own initiative, right? It's obedience that's enabled by His grace. We gather by God's grace. You see, all of us on our own would be wandering, would be scattered, would be far from Him, would in fact have no basis on which to come and stand here and sing with Him and pray to Him and say that we're meeting Him. No, God has taken the initiative. God has made a way for sinners to come into His presence in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And He blesses us with His presence, His gracious presence, and meets with us. It's not our initiative that we come to church to make ourselves right with God. No, when we gather, it's always a response to His grace, to His mercy, to His love towards us in Christ. The Lord invites us, He meets with us, and when we come here, we behold Him in all His beauty, in His glory, in His magnificence. And so as we worship, what we are saying is, we are coming here to meet with this one who is far more beautiful than all others and who is far more valuable to me, to us, than anything else in this world. As you worship, you are ascribing worth to God. You know, I have shared this imaginary situation before, but just imagine you finish uh, the service this morning, and all of a sudden you get a phone call, 
and you are told that His Highness, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, has invited you for a personal meeting with him in his majlis. All the rest of your plans for this afternoon and this evening would be canceled, I guarantee. And you would be there to meet with an earthly king. And here we come to meet with the King of Kings, our Lord, our Creator, in this unique gathering which He has appointed, where He meets with us in a special way, different from just our private worship. This is His gathering. So that's the first reason we gather, because God has called us to, and we glorify Him and enjoy Him as we do. We gather for God. The second reason why we gather is for one another. Is for one another, for ourselves, for one another. I told you the uh, first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is the chief purpose of gathering? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him together. We come to glorify God and enjoy Him together. And together we enjoy Him in a way that we wouldn't if we were just alone. Now I can think of uh, particular moments in my life going all the way back to when I was 9 or 10 years old and I remember them like this. One of those moments, these are unique moments, many of us have these, right? One of those moments was when I went with my grandfather for a cricket match, I was nine years old, in my city, uh, India versus England, in 1992. And it was my, I think, my first time in a live cricket match. And I can just remember the smell of the stadium. <laughs> I can remember being surrounded by, you know, these huge crowds of people. My throat was completely gone by the end of the week. Yeah, it was five days long. Throat was busted from screaming, right? Uh, I remember being part of the Mexican wave, right? You know the Mexican wave? They, they do this in football stadiums. It goes around the stadium. And, and, and you're just immersed in this experience with others where you're enjoying an event. You're enjoying something together. And it's just different when you're sitting at home. Right? I'm watching the games like, yeah! There's no one else here screaming. Right? Or watching alone, like, Mexican wave! Doesn't work. <laughs> Friends, God has created us as embodied beings. Right? He didn't just make us to be souls floating around in the metaverse. He made us spirit and body. He, he gave us flesh and blood and we will forever be embodied beings because these bodies will be raised from the dead in the final resurrection, and we will be embodied in the new creation. And as we gather with others around us, as we hear their voices, as we feel their presence with us, gatherings shape and form us. They bring us together in a way to experience something that we don't when we're sitting at home alone watching on YouTube. You know, in our day, people have gotten very confused about the meaning and definition of church. I've heard it very often said, well, isn't church the people, not the place? And, and when we go from here, aren't we still gospel ambassadors? We're the church. And to that, I want to say, well, it's not exactly accurate. Yes, when we go from here, we're still the church. And yes, church is the people. But biblically speaking, the church is a people who gather in a place. <laughs> the church is a people who assemble in a place. The word church, as I showed you last week, means in the New Testament, assembly, ecclesia. That word is used even, you know, if the, in, in, in Greek literature, if there was a political rally and people were gathered in a place, they call that the assembly. That's the word that Jesus has used, that the New Testament writers use, to speak of the church. It's people who gather in a place. And yes, when we go from here, we're still a church. 
We're still the church scattered. But it's kind of like the same way you think about the word team, right? Think of the Argentinian football team. You meet Leo Messi somewhere. Is he the Argentinian football team? In one sense, yes, he's a team member. Still represents that team when he's outside. But they're not a team unless they ever get on the field together, right? So friends, we don't go, kids, we don't go to church to worship. No, we gather to worship because we are the church who gathers. And the New Testament is full of language that indicates this to us very, very clearly. Right? If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, uh, I can point you to the clearest instance in verse 18 when he, he's, uh, Paul says, when you come together, and you gather together as a church, and no less than five times in that chapter, he keeps on speaking again and again of when you are gathered together, when you assemble together, when you come together. If you go to 1 Corinthians 14, 23, uh, where he's giving instructions for order in worship and uh, the spiritual gifts, you can talk about that at lunch if you want, uh, he speaks of the whole church coming together. And then as we read the New Testament, we see that the New Testament is full of instructions that can only be fulfilled if we gather together. Think of all the one another commands in the New Testament letters. Teach and admonish one another. Speak to one another. Sing together in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody with your hearts to God. The New Testament tells us to exhort one another. To encourage one another. Think about Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24-25, which our sister read earlier. Which tells us, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but encourage one another. Right? It, it commands us to assemble, not to forsake this, and to assemble for our mutual encouragement. We're commanded in the New Testament that scripture should be read publicly. What is that speaking about? Not out, not out on the street. It's here together in the church. Read the scripture. Preach the word. Where does that happen? When we assemble as a church. Brothers and sisters, we need one another and God has given us to one another as a gift for each other's growth, for each other's care. And it's when we're together that we are shaped and formed further and further into the image of Christ as we see examples and pictures of godliness all around us. You know, I was in a conversation earlier this week with uh, a sister, and uh, she was, we were talking about you know, my, what I do when I'm in worship, and she says, I think people get kind of surprised or uncomfortable sometimes because you're always looking around right, during the singing. So all of a sudden you look there and it's like, oh, Pastor Arb is looking at me. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe you've wondered as to why I do that strange thing. Ah, I know what he's doing. He's checking to see who obeyed the sermon and attended. Who's, attending, who's in attendance this morning. And you know, he's doing surveillance to make sure he knows who to call and say, hey, come back to church. Well, let me tell you the real reason why I look around when we sing. Um, one of these things is just the power of example. Uh, the church where I really was discipled as a Christian, where I was eventually ordained as a pastor, uh, the pastor of that church always looked around. And in the first year, I was wondering why he does this. Uh, and then I realized Ephesians 5, Colossians 3 say, speak to one another, sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So I'm singing, speaking to you, and letting you speak and sing to me. But it's more than that. Remember last week I talked about the church being the bride of Christ and how Jesus as the bridegroom looks at his bride, how at weddings we see the look of love and longing and desire of the bridegroom for the bride. And so when I look around the room, I look and I say, this is the bride whom Jesus loves. This is the bride that he purchased with his own blood. These people 
are the wisdom of Almighty God on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and to me. These are the holy saints whom God the Holy Spirit fills, in whom he lives. And these are the dear saints that Jesus has bought with his blood and whom he has called me to love, to shepherd, to serve. These are the dear people who pray for me, who encourage me, who bear with and forgive all my faults and flaws and failures and sins. These are the people who have cared for my family. These are the holy company of God's saints who will help me make it to heaven. They're going to help me get home. And don't we need that with one another? I want to speak to the kids. This is why you come to church, kids. You see pictures of godliness and of Jesus through mommy and daddy at home. You see Jesus in their lives. But when you gather with the church, you get to see Jesus in so many other lives all across the room. We point each other to Jesus and help one another make it to heaven. Why must we gather? We gather for God. We gather for one another. And third, we gather for the world. We gather for the world. You know, in 2012, there was a, a great terrible incident of violence uh, against a woman in North India. It's a, sadly a very common occurrence in my home country. But this time there was something different. All of a sudden it sparked something in the young people of India. And overnight, for a whole week almost, there were throngs and throngs, hundreds of thousands of people gathering in the streets in protest at what had happened to this uh, woman whom they, they gave her a, a, a name. They called her Nirbhaya, which means lightning. Uh, and they all gathered in the streets. And those protests resulted in action. It all of a sudden became an important issue for politicians to try and ensure the protection of women and, and, and adjust the laws. Now, the follow-through on that hasn't been as much as we would expect. But you see this all around the world, don't you? When, when there's a gathering of people, things happen. Gatherings change lives change cultures, change the world. Gatherings give shape to a people and a purpose and a cause. I mean, think about if you were walking down the street and you saw a huge crowd of people gathering, even a smaller crowd, 300 people, what would you do by instinct? You're not going to walk on by. You're going to look to see what's going on. Well, when we gather, brothers and sisters... We are giving people a picture of God's purposes. God collects, gathers, assembles His Christians and says, that's the city of God right there. This is the embassy of the kingdom of heaven, of my kingdom. We saw last week, Ephesians 3.10, this is the display of my wisdom, these people. And it's a testimony to those outside. Who don't know Christ. You know, I remember many, many years ago, I was a rock musician. I had never been to an evangelical church, gospel preaching church in my life. I was accustomed to all sorts of gatherings where we did all sorts of things. And then through the influence of a friend of mine, I went for the first time to a church service. And immediately I was struck. There's something happening here. And if there is a God, then these people know Him. We gather and it is a witness to those who don't know the Lord. And maybe you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord, you've happened to come into this gathering, Jesus is not your Lord, not your Savior, someone has brought you with them, 
and you're here and you're, you've watched these people singing. You've watched the joy that they have together. You've observed how these people pray together. And you're wondering, what is this? We want to tell you, dear friend, none of us are here on our own merit. We're all sinners who don't deserve to know God. We're all sinners who deserve God's judgment because He is a holy God and we have sinned against Him. But God has been gracious to us, merciful to us, in that He sent His only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died to save sinners, who took upon Himself the penalty for our sins, died as a substitute, rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, and now calls to sinners everywhere, from every nation, to turn from sin and trust in Him. And we can know God and have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That can be yours today if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. It's not by accident that you're here in this gathering, dear non-Christian friend. So all of that then answers question one. Why do we gather? Why, why must we gather? It's for God, for one another, and for the world. Question number two asks this. What should we do when we gather? What should we do when we gather? Question one was why. Question two is what. And the answer is actually quite simple. It's one word. We worship. We gather to worship God. And, you know, I like theologians have defined worship in many different ways. Uh, I like a few of these definitions. One person says, it's engagement with God by His grace and according to His terms. Engagement with God by His grace according to His terms. Our dear brother, Sam, Dr. Sam Parkinson, uh, who's here as a seminary professor with Gulf Theological Seminary, has written a book on worship. It's an excellent book. It's called Revelation and Response. So in other words, worship is God revealing Himself and His people responding to His revelation. Ligon Duncan says this, Worship is declaring with our lips and our lives that God is more important than anything else to us. I like the Westminster Catechism's uh, first answer. We glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's worship. And corporate worship is we glorify God and enjoy Him together. You know, sometimes I've heard people say uh, this with refer reference to um, the gathering. They'll say, we had a great time of worship, and, and then there was a good message. And I want to say that that kind of uh, speaking actually confuses the meaning of worship. Or people talk about the worship team, you know, and speaking about the music team. And, and we would say, well, biblically speaking, the whole gathering is the worship service. The whole congregation is the worship team. Worship begins with the call to worship, continues through the singing, through the prayers, through the sermon, through the benediction, and it doesn't just stop there, it continues as we fellowship with one another and encourage one another and pray for one another after the service. So worship is the whole thing and it all tells the gospel story, doesn't it? God is our creator. He takes the initiative by his grace in the call to worship. He welcomes us, calls us to meet with him by grace and for his glory. Then we respond in adoration for who he is. We agree with his assessment of us as sinners. We confess our sins. Our sight of God in his glory causes us to recognize our own sinfulness. We confess our sins. We receive the grace of the gospel through the assurance of the pardon of our sins. We hear God speak to us through the scriptures. We respond in thankfulness and praise. And then often we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together, commune with one another and with the Lord at His table. And then God blesses us through His Word in the benediction, sending us out. So all of it is worship. You know, we've seen a really 
I'm familiar with as one of the pastors here, three kinds of responses to uh, ECC's worship. Okay. So the first response is people come, maybe they're new here, maybe not so new. They come because they like the expository preaching. They think that ECC has a strong preaching, teaching ministry. I just talked with someone yesterday who said, uh, you know, we praise God that there are multiple preachers in this church. And they wonder about the music and the song selection. Why is there no praise band? Why are all the lights on? Some people wonder if we're capable of reaching this generation, this generation, with this kind of style of music. It's not appealing to the young people. So that's one response. The other response is maybe those who come from a little bit more what we call high church backgrounds, right? So they may be from a Lutheran background or an Anglican background, Reformed background, high church Reformed, maybe even visiting from uh, Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox, and then they come here and it's like, oh, this is so informal, right? Uh, why is this kind of so casual, informal? In fact, we've had people leave ECC uh, for want of more liturgical form in worship. That's the second response. The third one is just people who have somehow embraced and learned to enjoy what we do here in public worship. But still, maybe that's you, and, and you wonder at the reasons behind the differences between what we do and what you've previously experienced, and you'd like to know, why is it we do these things the way that we do? Well, if that's you, excellent. Today's the day you've been waiting for. I'm going to give you Quickly, eight aspects of our worship at ECC. Eight aspects of our worship. First, our worship here, as with all Christian worship in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, must be biblical. It must be biblical. You know, we're speaking of coming to meet with God in worship. And we should recognize that God has not left it to our own imagination what we should do when we come to worship Him. Throughout the Bible, God always, always provides clear instructions as to how He is to be worshipped. He is the one we are worshipping. This is an offering to Him. So we must do it on His terms, according to His commands. He's the one who calls and summons us into His presence. He's the one who sets the agenda for this meeting. If you went to meet the sheikh, you don't go in there and tell him, this is what I want to do here. Right? God sets the agenda. And, and you know, as you read the Bible, you'll really see that idolatry takes two forms. One form of idolatry, and this has been recognized throughout church history by various theologians. One form of idolatry is when we worship the wrong God. The other form of idolatry is when we claim to worship the true God, but we worship Him in the wrong way, according to our own desires and inclinations. Friends, worship is not by human imagination or invention, but by divine instruction. Engagement with God by His grace according to His terms. This is sometimes called the regulative principle of worship. That's an important theological phrase for you to know. The regulative principle of worship, which simply means worship must be biblical. Everything in worship is regulated by God's Word. So when we gather... Worship is according to the scriptures. It's word-based. It's filled with the word of God. It's framed by the word of God. It's directed by the word of God. It's ordered by the word of God. And the content is the word of God. We come together and we read the word. Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. Moses was to read God's covenant to the people. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come, Paul says, he's speaking of the church. Telling Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. It's actually quite a shame that in many, many evangelical churches, we are those who claim to believe the Bible is our final authority. But in many evangelical churches, there's less Scripture than in a Roman Catholic church. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. We read the Word. We preach the Word. Right? We preach the word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and by His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, the elders there, he says that I have declared to you, proclaimed to you the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink back. We'll talk in a sermon a couple of weeks from now about the centrality and importance of preaching. Third, we pray the word. We pray the word. Jesus said, Mark chapter 11, verse 17, my house shall be a house of prayer. So when we gather together, we must pray and call upon the Lord. And then we sing the word. We sing the word. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that, by the way, is multiple categories. Psalms, it includes the inspired songs given to us in the Bible. And then we see the word. So I said worship must be biblical, which means we read the word, we preach the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, and we see the word. What do you mean we see the word? I'm going to show you a video. No. God has given us instructions for how to see his word visibly. Those are called the ordinances or the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the visible symbols that God has appointed in our age. Right? Uh, Augustine used to say that these sacraments are visible words. They are visible representations of what God has done in the new covenant. So first, our worship must be biblical. Second, our worship must be simple. Uh, in the old covenant, worship was very elaborate. Right? They brought bulls and they brought goats. There was this entire temple structure tabernacle, then later temple. There was uh, elaborate garments that the priests were to wear. There was bells and all of these things. And then in the new covenant, as we read, worship is fairly simple. We're told very clearly what to do. It's these five biblical things. Read, preach, pray, sing, see. Uh, We are not to have major rituals with candles and incense and all of those things. That's not commanded in God's word in, for his new covenant people. Nor does it have to be some kind of elaborate production with high-tech, sophisticated devices and a professional band and smoke machine. We don't see that in the New Testament. It's simple. It's biblical, simple. Third, our worship must be spiritual. Spiritual. What do I mean by that? It means that the Holy Spirit is active and directs all that we do. He gathers us. He fills us. He empowers us. He moves us to worship God. He is active in our gatherings. And how does the Holy Spirit primarily work? Through the word that He has inspired. He leads us to Christ through His word. Somehow, people in our day and age have confused spiritual with spontaneous. So, for some reason, people think that if it's spontaneous, then it's led by the Spirit. And if it's planned, it's not led by the Spirit. And I want to ask, where in the Bible did you get that idea? It's actually not there. Uh, If you're looking at the Scriptures... Um, the Holy Spirit inspired very careful, clear plans and detailed instructions when it comes to the Old Covenant, the tabernacle, temple. You see great thought and care and planning put into writing the Psalms, especially a Psalm like Psalm 119. Every letter of the Hebrew alphabet represents every eight verses. Even in the New Covenant, Paul tells us all things should be done in orderly fashion. There's no sense here that somehow being spontaneous is more spiritual. I used to think that. I used to, in fact, when I preach, I don't write anything down. I don't prepare. I just go and preach because I used to think that's more from the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's not a biblical idea. The Spirit works through our planning, through our thought processes. Our worship must be biblical, simple, spiritual. Next, it must be historic. It's historic. At ECC, we seek to keep our worship historic. You know, these days, people don't like sermons, so they don't like prayers, long prayers especially. They don't like hymns and definitely don't like singing psalms. 
and so sermons, prayers, hymns, and psalms are out. Instead, talks, praise bands, videos, and lights are in. And we want to say in, in, a, in a worship service, we want to gather together and worship God in a way that would be recognizable to the apostles, to believers in the early church, to believers at the time of the Protestant Reformation. Last week I thought, talked about us being one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Right? We have unity with the church throughout the ages. We are to be distinctive, different from the world. Right? Different in what this assembly represents. That was what I was struck by as a, as a rock musician walking into church, how different this was from anything else I'd been to. Biblical, simple, um, spiritual, historic, affectional, all right, affectional. By that we mean when we come into worship, we must be engaged in our hearts, in our feelings. Sometimes people speak of a worship experience as though that's just, you know, I want, I want the emotions to, uh, kind of my emotions to be stirred up somehow and have all these feelings. But we're not gathering to have a worship experience and emotional feelings just by something that happens on the stage that then washes over us and uh, moves our emotions. But remember, we're coming to meet with God and give Him the glory due His name and to edify one another and it's the truth of God's word and of his presence that should stir our affections, our hearts. We must be deeply moved. And our affections and emotions are stirred, but this takes place through the revelation of God's truth in our midst. Not just empty feelings. And, and if you look in the Bible, there's a whole range of affections, of emotions that we are to be engaged in. There's reverence. Offer God an acceptable service of worship with reverence and awe. There's joy. There's the fear of the Lord, the thrill of coming into His presence. There's exuberance and there's even lament. There's place in the Bible for lament and sorrow and grief as we read the Psalms. Our worship must be affectional and engage this entire spectrum of human affections and emotions. Next, our worship must be congregational. Congregational. Uh, the worship is in church is sometimes called gathered worship. It's called assembled worship. It's called public worship. It's called corporate worship. Corporate referring to us as the body of Christ. Corp, corpus means body, right? So corporate. When we gather here, everyone has a job to do. You have a job. You have a responsibility. You have an assignment just as much as I have. So we don't come here for passive absorption we don't come here to anonymously watch a show and then go home quickly. No, it's active participation. We want to be aware of who's around us, engaged in our minds and hearts of how can we bless them? How can I be present to minister to the other saints that are here this morning? How can I encourage people with my singing, with my response to the prayers, by, by our greeting before and after the service, by encouraging one another after the service? You know, Congregational worship actually should kill our individualistic and consumeristic ideas. We should come not asking, well, what's in this service for me? No, we should come asking, what am I bringing in this service to God and to my fellow brothers and sisters? The platform is not up here, it's down here. Right? The platform is the pew. <laughs> That's a Roman Catholic idea, that somehow what's happening up here transmits grace to you and you're a passive receiver. No, the biblical idea is far more congregational. That what's happening up here actually empowers you to encourage and, and minister to one another. We don't come as anonymous participants. It's not like a movie theater, right? In a movie theater, it's all dark. You don't care who's next to you. No, this is a family celebration where we enjoy the presence of one another and continue serving one another. It's congregational. Next, it must be evangelistic. Evangelistic. Right? We are here, we are gathered as a witness to the world. Now, in the last 20 years, 30 years or so, people have come up with this idea that the worship service is primarily and only evangelism. Right? So the entire service is geared up towards what they call seeker-sensitive or uh, towards non-Christians. But biblically... 
The service is primarily for us to enjoy and meet with God and edify one another. And yet, an effect of that is that non-Christians who see our worship, who are here perchance, will be moved by what they see and will hear the gospel and understand it and embrace it. And lastly, our worship must always be Christ-centered. Christ-centered. When we gather together in God's presence, an amazing thing is happening. The Father is declaring the glory of the Son, our King, our Lord Jesus Christ. We come here and we meet with and encounter Him, our risen Redeemer, the Son of God Himself. We see Him. We hear Him. He's here. And for all eternity, dear brothers and sisters, this will be what we gaze upon. As you read the book of Revelation, we see this, that forever and ever we will be transfixed on the glorious Son of God, the Savior who was crucified to save us, who rose again, who will forever receive praise from His people, singing, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. And our assembly week after week here in the church, in this little gathering we call ECC, is the dress rehearsal for that glorious day. Sometimes people ask me if I have some kind of hidden agenda with my repeated emphasis on gathering. And I want to say, yes, I do have an agenda. My agenda is your greatest possible enjoyment of God and His greatest uh, glory in our gatherings. My agenda is your best possible preparation for heaven where we will glorify our God and enjoy Him together forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift and grace of corporate worship May we love the gathering of your saints and be committed to it and long for it now and always. In Jesus' name, amen.